How do you conduct yourself in adversity? How do you handle yourself when things go poorly? I think a lot of times when the screws are tightened, so to speak, and things get difficult, then that's where what is inside of us will come out. Just think, for instance, of the children of Israel in the wilderness. When the screws were tightened, they were hungry, were thirsty, were fearful. What was inside of them came out, and they conducted themselves poorly. But this morning, as we turn our attention to Genesis 39, we see something very different and very opposite with respect to Joseph. Joseph's adversity had already begun with his brothers kidnapping him, selling him into slavery. But here in Genesis 39, we see a picture of him in slavery and in adversity in more ways than one. And yet, what was inside of him came out. He trusted the Lord, he loved the Lord, he feared the Lord, and it was evident. So let's look to the text, Genesis chapter 39. Moses writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned, in the house and in the field. So he left everything that he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. 
Now, when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him to prosper. Now, here in Genesis 39, Moses resumes the history where he had left off at the end of chapter 37. Chapter 38, of course, we had the interlude with with Judah and Tamar. But now Moses picks up the story where he had left off with Joseph being sold to Potiphar, who was Pharaoh's officer and the captain of the bodyguard. As it stands, Joseph has gone from being the favorite son of his father to now being a slave in a foreign land. But despite the change in the circumstances, Joseph has something very important. He had the presence of the Lord with him. And this loomed large in Stephen's mind in Acts 7-9 when he spoke of Joseph's time in Egypt and said, God was with him. And indeed, that's a theme that we find throughout this chapter over and over again. The Lord was with Joseph. You see it in verse 2, the Lord was with him. You see it down later on, verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. You see it again in verse 23, the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Despite the unsettling events of the chapter, the Lord was with Joseph. And in this, we certainly see that the presence of God does not mean the absence of problems, the absence of adversity, the absence of difficulties in life. It often means just the opposite. We heard about that from our brother John Sanders last Sunday night in his sermon from 2 Corinthians 12, how the Lord was with Paul and had given him this great revelation and taken him up to the third heaven, but yet still the Lord permitted him to have this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan to keep him from exalting himself. And so the presence of God and even the blessing of God in our lives does not mean the absence of trials. And therefore, what we have in this chapter is a particular outworking of the truth of Psalm 34, 19, which says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And so, as we consider this chapter this morning, we're going to do so under three main headings. First of all, be faithful in adversity. Be faithful in adversity. Secondly, resist temptation in the fear of God. Resist temptation in the fear of God. And then thirdly, shadows of Jesus. So we have be faithful in adversity. Resist temptation in the fear of God, and then shadows of Jesus. And so, for Joseph, according to his outward circumstances, things looked very bleak. But on the other hand, the Lord was with him, and that made all the difference in the world. And so we see in verse 2 that despite being enslaved, he was a successful man. In this we understand the Lord was with Joseph and granted him success. But as we, as we think about this, we need to understand that this success came not without means, 
but with means. That is to say, by means of his industry. He was being industrious. And by that, I mean that Joseph was not simply just sitting around and by that being successful. He was, he was working hard. He was getting with the program. He was doing what he was told to do. And the Lord was blessing him and his work. And I think we see that in, in verse 3, how Potiphar takes notice of how the Lord was with him because he sees how the Lord caused everything that Joseph did, everything that Joseph did, to prosper. Joseph wasn't simply sitting around and bemoaning how bad his circumstances were or bemoaning how evil his brothers had been to sell him into slavery or bemoaning why God had allowed these things to happen to him. Joseph, rather, was out there as a slave making it happen, doing the best under the circumstances, being faithful in adversity. And Potiphar took notice, right? He saw that Joseph was working hard. He saw Joseph's success in his undertakings, and he perceived that the Lord was with him. He understood the Lord's blessing was the source of Joseph's success and his prosperity in all that he did and undertook. Now, the Apostle Paul commanded slaves in the first century in Colossians 4, 22 through 24, that in all things they were to obey their masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He said, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. And I think that in those words of Paul, though obviously they were written long time after Joseph, nevertheless we probably get a picture of how Joseph was conducting himself, acting in obedience, with sincerity of heart, Bearing the Lord, working heartily as unto the Lord, and not for men. Surely the Lord wouldn't have granted success to Joseph had he been conducting himself slothfully. And surely Potiphar would not have promoted someone who was sluggish in his work. Joseph was making the most of adverse circumstances, being faithful in that adversity. He was a man who feared God, had the presence of God, and was working hard. And in this, I think that we see in Joseph's conduct an implicit rebuke to some of the mentalities that overshroud our age. Because if you think about it, Joseph could have checked off a lot of victim boxes, right? He could have checked off a lot of intersectionality boxes, right? Kidnapped? Check. Sold into slavery? Check. Now a foreigner in a foreign land? Check. But even though he was a true victim in all of those things, he didn't let that stop him from trusting God, from fearing God, and from being faithful under the circumstances. And that trust in God and that fear of God and faithfulness to God is seen practically in how he conducted himself. It is seen in what he did. I'm not suggesting and saying all of that, that it was simply Joseph's elbow grease that made him prosperous. Just as the text is clear that the Lord was with Joseph, the text is also very clear that it was the Lord who made him prosperous and successful. You see this in verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, down uh, again at the end of the chapter in verse 23. The Lord was with him. The Lord made him successful. Even as we find in Psalm 127, verse 1, that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It was the Lord who was granting Joseph the prosperity. But again, that prosperity came by use of means. Just as Psalm 127 does not imply that the Lord builds the house without laborers 
or protects the city without watchmen. Neither does Genesis 39 imply that the Lord blessed Joseph in the absence of his industry. Rather, again, the Lord caused Joseph to prosper in all that he did. And again, down in verse 23, whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. And as the chapter unfolds, certainly we see that Joseph, despite his faithfulness under the circumstances, we see that things go from bad to worse, don't they? Joseph was, as we see, persecuted for his godliness, and he remained faithful and worked hard despite that. After Joseph resisted temptation, this then was the very reason for which he was falsely accused and then imprisoned because of his incessant refusals culminating in that last incident when Potiphar's wife took hold of his garment and he left it in her hand and then she became so angered that she bore false witness and accused him of doing the thing that she was actually attempting to do. When she failed to get him to go along with her immoral design, she accused Joseph of attempting rape and Joseph gets thrown into prison. Joseph here is persecuted for the sake of godliness. But yet he remains faithful, as we see. Faithful even in the prison. And of course the persecution for the sake of godliness didn't stop with Joseph. This has happened all throughout the course of history. This happens still. Perhaps this has happened to you. Perhaps it will happen to you at some point in the future. Persecution for the sake of godliness. And if it does happen to you, take heart. Because you're in good company. You're in the company of Joseph. You're in the company of the prophets who spoke the word of the Lord to the ungodly who rose up against them. You're in the company of the apostles who preached the gospel in Jerusalem. You're in the company of Paul as he was imprisoned and beaten as a result of casting out a demon from that slave girl in Philippi. You too may be persecuted for the sake of godliness. But our Lord says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so Joseph was here in very dark and extremely difficult circumstances, but was faithful in adversity, and the Lord blessed him. And in this, he stands out as an example to us that we must keep on going Keep on serving the Lord in adversity and take things one step at a time. Now, I don't profess to know what everyone here is facing this morning. I know at least some of the circumstances that some of you are facing, but I certainly don't know all of them. Life can be hard for all sorts of reasons. Adversity is real, and we all face adversity and difficulty for all kinds of different circumstances. But... If you're a Christian, if you trust in Christ, you can take heart because you have the presence of God with you, even as Joseph did. We read together those words from Hebrews this morning, Hebrews 13. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And in this way, there is a parallel between our experience as Christians here in this world and the experience of Joseph here in Genesis 39. We face trials on the one hand, and on the other hand, we have the presence of God with us. The question then is this. Are we going to be faithful in adversity in the same way that Joseph was? 
Are you going to be faithful? Am I going to be faithful? Are we going to keep our nose to the grindstone, so to speak, and keep working, keep doing the next right thing the way that Joseph did? This is what we ought to do. This is what we are commanded to do. And the way that we ought to do it is by looking to the Lord. The Lord was Joseph's helper. The Lord was with him. The Lord was the one who gave him the success. The Lord gave him favor later on in the eyes of his jailer. And in this, we need to seek the Lord's grace so that we too may be faithful even in adverse and difficult circumstances. And this brings us then to our second point for this morning, which is resist temptation in the fear of God. The text is very clear here about the nature of the temptation that came toward Joseph. We find at the end of verse 6 that Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. Now in the original, the same words are used here to describe Joseph that were used back in chapter 29, verse 17, to describe his mother. His mother was Rachel. The text in Genesis 29, 17 is translated as Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now, our English renderings are, are somewhat different in Genesis 29, 17 and Genesis 39, 6, but the same, the same words are used to, to convey the, the beauty of these persons. Rachel on the one hand, Joseph on the other. Joseph was a handsome young man. Now, this chapter doesn't give us a timeline to know for sure how long Joseph was in the service of Potiphar before uh, things fell out with Potiphar's wife and Joseph was imprisoned. We don't know the timeline precisely, but inasmuch as Genesis 37.2 gives his age as 17 when the trouble started brewing with his brothers, we know that by this time he's at least in his late teens, maybe in his early 20s. And being a handsome young man, his wife's, uh, his, his master's wife takes notice of him and seeks, in no uncertain terms, to seduce him. There's no ambiguity at all going on when a grown woman says to a young man, lie with me. Now, before we get to Joseph's response, we need to acknowledge that Scripture is clear that both men and women can be sexual sinners, that both men and women can commit sexual sins. It is also clear that both men and women can and have taken the lead been the initiators in the commission of these kinds of sins, or at least in the effort to commit these kinds of sins. And so, for example, of men taking the lead, think of Shechem, Genesis 34, think of David, 2 Samuel 11, think of Amnon, 2 Samuel 13. For women, just think about Solomon's warnings about the evil woman and the smooth tongue of the adulteress, Proverbs 6.24. Think of his warning against the adulteress and the prostitute in Proverbs 7 who went out to meet that naive young man. She was dressed as a harlot, cunning of heart. She seizes him and kisses him and makes her face bold to him as she enticed him with her many persuasions and seduced him with her flattering lips. Women can be seducers also, and we have here Potiphar's wife, Genesis 39. And so neither men nor women have a monopoly on this kind of sin. And so this means that we need to each take heed to ourselves, to, to watch our own hearts, to watch our own actions, so that we not be seducers nor seduced. And Joseph provides us an excellent model for resisting that temptation. He was looking not only 
at what was right in front of him, but he was looking much beyond what was in front of him. Now, back in the day when I worked for UPS, though I didn't drive any of their trucks, I did drive some of their equipment around the airport, and as such, I had to learn what they called the five seeing habits. Now, I won't bore you with what all of those five habits were. If you want to know, we can talk afterwards. But I will tell you one of them, and one of those five seeing habits was to get the big picture. In other words, as you're driving something, you want to be aware of your surroundings. You want to get the big picture. Don't be just looking at what's straight in front of you. Get get the big picture. Know what is out there. And that's not only helpful for driving. That's helpful for all of life, actually. And Joseph here got the big picture as he was responding to Potiphar's wife. We need to think about this because how easy would it have been for a young man in his position, a slave, being invited by his master's wife to commit adultery, how easy it would have been for him to say yes. How many men with far more earthly prosperity, far more that they could lose, in other words, would have said yes to such an offer? How many men with far more earthly prosperity to lose would have been the initiators of such liaisons? But Joseph would not even accept the offers of this powerful woman, much less would he seek out anything illicit. Joseph got the big picture, and we see this in his words there in verses 8 and 9, where he says, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great evil and sin against God? You see, Joseph was able to look not only at the beauty of the woman in front of him, he was able to look beyond that and to look beyond the passing pleasures of the sin that was dangled before him. He looked, for one, at his position there in Potiphar's house. He was in charge of the household. No one in that house was was greater than him other than Potiphar himself. Potiphar didn't worry about anything because he knew that Joseph was a trustworthy man. He saw his success, his prosperity, his faithfulness in all that he had done. And Joseph recognized the trust that existed between Potiphar and himself and that for him to commit adultery would have been a betrayal of that trust. And so he saw here the horizontal human betrayal that would be part of the package if he were to go along with Potiphar's wife. And, though he did not expressly say so, he understood that there would be a fallout if he committed adultery and Potiphar discovered it. But Joseph saw that the picture was even bigger than that. Right? He didn't stop and say, okay, this is going to have some bad earthly repercussions. Here I am, a trusted servant. Things are looking up for me. If I do this, things might look bad for me. Joseph even saw beyond that. He resisted the temptation because he feared God. He knew that adultery was sin. He says, how then can I do this great evil and sin against God? This shows us that even prior to the giving of the Mosaic law in its written form, the patriarchs understood the moral law of God. They knew God's commandments. As we saw earlier back in Genesis 26, 5, when the Lord appeared to Isaac, the Lord had said there that Abraham had obeyed him and kept his charge, his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. Abraham knew what these commandments, statutes, and laws of God were, and he kept them. Similarly, Abraham had been commanded by the Lord in Genesis 17.1 to walk before the Lord and to be blameless. 
Now, we're not given the specific details of how the patriarchs knew these things and by what means God had revealed the moral law to them, but they knew them. Abraham knew the commandments, the statutes, and laws of God, and he obeyed. Joseph knew here that adultery would be a sin, and therefore he kept away from it. He got the big picture. He saw past the tempting veneer of sin, and he saw not only that he would be violating the trust of his master, but that he would be doing a great evil and sinning against God. And so in in seeing this, we also see that this was not just a one-time thing. This was not just a, a one-off thing when Potiphar's wife approached him. This went on day after day. We find that in verse 12. This, this was a continual thing, and he continued to resist. We're told he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. He wasn't, wasn't having it. He refused to go along with this. And even when she laid her hand on him, he got out and got away as fast as he could. And in Joseph, getting the big picture and being able to see these downstream consequences, he is a model for us, right? He sees both the earthly consequences and the consequences that he would have from God were he to sin. The big thing that kept him back was the fear of God. And while it may not sound particularly spiritual, it's worth remembering that there are horizontal and earthly consequences that come to us because of sin. In fact, Solomon appeals to our sensitivity toward earthly consequences of sin in Proverbs 6, 32 to 35, when he says that the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though he give many gifts. And so it's not, it's not bad to see the horizontal and earthly consequences that can come to us because of sin. Those can be very helpful in terms of guarding us and keeping us from sin. But even more important than that is to see the potential consequences that could come to us from God. As the people of God... We need to recognize that earthly concerns must take a back seat to what is more important, namely the fear of God. Earthly consequences may or may not catch up with us if we dangle in the sin that is uh, placed before us. It's certainly within the realm of possibility that we can get away with sin, that no other human being on earth will ever know. But the Lord will know. And not only will the Lord know, he will take the appropriate action, whatever that may be, whenever he may deem fit. You remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, how they brought the money to the apostles, claiming that it was the entire price of the property that they had sold. And they made that claim all the while keeping back a certain portion of the proceeds for themselves. And they were certain that no one would know. But God knew, and God revealed it to the apostles, and the apostles knew, and the Lord judged them. And so, for us as Christians, we need to take to heart those words of Isaiah 8.13, where it is said, It is the Lord of hosts whom you shall regard as holy, and he shall be your fear 
and he shall be your dread. We as Christians must fear God and love God so that we walk in all his ways. And indeed, those were the words that Martin Luther used in his exposition of the Ten Commandments in his small catechism. As he worked through the Ten Commandments in his small catechism, the question would be asked, what does this commandment mean? And in the answers that were given, he would say, we should fear and love God, and so, and then the catechism would go on to explain how we're to obey. But the motivating factor was we should fear God and we should love God. And this sounds a lot like Joseph, right? Joseph loved God and Joseph feared God. That's why he said, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And so if you want help in fighting sin, start by loving and fearing God. If you want help in fighting sin, start by loving and fearing God. And if you want help loving God, then consider how lovely he is. That he is the first and greatest of all beings. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are one. He is the creator of all that is. And therefore we owe to this great God all that we are. It is he who made us, as the psalm says, and not we ourselves. It is he who has given to us all things, satisfying our hearts with food and gladness, as Paul would say in Acts 14. And infinitely more important than giving us earthly things to enjoy, God has loved us. And this then sets the baseline for what love is. And this is why John tells us in 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we loved, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And this is why we should love God, not only because he has created us, but he has loved us by sending his only begotten son into the world to become a man so that he himself could live a sinless life and die on the cross to redeem us, to redeem us, his image bearers who had rebelled against him, who had loved every conceivable thing other than God. To use the language of 2 Kings chapter 17, describing the, the, uh, the Israelites and those who came in uh, to the land. We loved vanity and became vain. That's us. But despite loving vanity and becoming vain, God still loved us. As Paul would say in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We had done everything to make ourselves unlovely. But God loved us and sent Christ to die for us so that he might make us lovely once again and so that in turn we might love God and so that we might be rescued from all of the worthless things in which we had involved ourselves. Our Lord Jesus went to the cross and suffered death so that we might be forgiven and then rose again on the third day to demonstrate that our redemption was complete and secure. And as such, Jesus has done everything so that we may be restored to fellowship with God. And he calls us into that fellowship with God by repentance and faith. He calls us to repent and believe the gospel. That is to say, we must turn from our sins, we must believe in Christ, and then begin to walk with him in obedience to his commandments, which are good and wholesome and perfect. And the foremost of these commandments is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. This is what we must do, is to love God. Loving God 
serves as a great safeguard against sin. And if you want to grow in the fear of God, reflect on his holiness. Reflect on his righteous judgment. Think of the examples of scripture. We mentioned Ananias and Sapphira. Remember those examples of judgment that we heard this morning from the scripture reading in 1 Corinthians 10. Remember the words of Hebrews 10.31, that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember the words of Hebrews 13.4, that marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Our fear and love for God are to be the main drivers in our obedience to God and our resistance against sin. They certainly seemed, uh, Joseph's fear of God certainly seemed to be the main driver in his resistance of sin. How can I do this great evil and sin against God? Now we've seen in this chapter how Joseph was faithful in adversity and how he resisted temptation in the fear of God. But we also see here in this chapter the shadows of our Lord Jesus Christ. We observed a couple of weeks ago back in chapter 37 some of the ways in which Joseph foreshadowed Christ. And don't we see even more of the ways that Joseph foreshadowed Christ here in chapter 39? Just as Joseph had the presence of God with him, so did our Lord Jesus Christ. Even though our Lord Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, the second person of the Holy Trinity, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, yet, nevertheless, it is also true to say that God was with him. That's what Peter says as he was preaching to Cornelius in Acts 10.38. Jesus himself said in John 16.32, Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. And you recall that at his baptism, the Spirit came down upon him in the form of a dove. Our Lord Jesus was himself God, and yet God was with him. And also, our Lord resisted the temptations that were offered to him. Joseph resisted temptations here, and Jesus resisted temptation as well. He resisted Satan by answering Satan out of the word of God. And it's interesting if we think about the responses that Jesus gave to Satan in the temptation and the account that we find in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus answered Satan in reference to God. Right? We've seen that Joseph demonstrated the fear of God by the attitude in which he resisted temptation, and so did Jesus. As Jesus was resisting temptation, he was always referring back to God in that account in Matthew 4. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall, not, uh, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And what this teaches us is that as man, Jesus loved and feared God. And in that love and fear of God, he resisted the temptations that were offered to him. We also know that our Lord suffered, though he was innocent. Like Joseph, he was falsely accused and suffered, though innocent. Throughout his life, of course, Jesus was accused of many things, falsely. But at his trial before the Sanhedrin, he was falsely accused of blasphemy. We find in Matthew 26, verse 65. And when he was taken before Pilate, and Pilate could find no guilt in him, the Jewish leaders said, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. John 19, 7. Now, it was certainly true. Jesus did make himself out to be the Son of God, but he was, in fact, telling the truth about it. He was not blaspheming in the claim. 
But nevertheless, Jesus was falsely accused and punished, though he was innocent. But also, like Joseph, this false accusation and punishment which Jesus suffered paved the way both for his own exaltation and for the deliverance of his people. Now, most of you are no doubt familiar with the story of Joseph, and Lord willing, we'll consider this in future weeks as we see Joseph there in prison and subsequently being elevated by Pharaoh, later on delivering his brothers in the famine and so forth. How much more, then, was this the case with Christ, who was falsely accused and delivered over to punishment, not merely to prison, but further than that, to death on the cross, And it was precisely this, then, the false accusation, the punishment resulting from it that led to Christ's exaltation. His death on the cross and burial led to the resurrection and the ascension. And those things not only lead to Christ's exaltation, but also bring salvation to the world. Though it was not what his enemies intended in the least, Christ's death and burial was precisely the mechanism that would lead to his own exaltation and was precisely the mechanism by which he would save a people for himself. For it was there that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross, we're told in Philippians 2 that it was for this reason also that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so while we must observe in Genesis 39 much that is worthy of our imitation, we must seek the help of God to imitate the godliness of Joseph, we must also see in Joseph the shadows of a greater deliverer, even the shadows of the greatest deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in seeing Christ, we must repent, believe, and follow him in the love and fear of God. All praise and glory be to his name. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, Lord, that we would be faithful in adversity, that we would resist temptation, and Lord, that we would always be looking to Christ, that we would be strong in him and in the strength which he provides. Lord, we know that left to ourselves, we will fail in innumerable ways. But we pray, Lord, that you would make us strong, that you would build us up. And we praise you for uh, the great redemption that is found in Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.